6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she remarries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that, which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, how we live carries important implications for life. How we live affects us. The choices we make shape our experience in life and the choices we make shapes our own heart. Take greed, the choice of being greedy. Proverbs 1.19 says this, Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Have you ever run into someone whose life choices had sucked the very life out of them? You can live however you want until you're 50. And then it catches up with you and you have to live with the accumulation of the consequences of the choice you have made. Have you ever heard the question before, do you call this living? Some find themselves in what they would argue is a miserable state. And apart from Jesus Christ and cultivating a relationship With him, despair in this broken world can get that gritty. You call this living? There is a unique and fulfilling joy that comes to a fruit-bearing life of submission to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at. And he works and worms his way in these six verses till he gets to verse 6. Do you want to know more about how to experience the joy of a fruit-bearing life? I do, and I want us to together. So we're going to study these six verses this morning. Now, you'll remember that we looked last week at Romans 7, 1, 2, and 3, which we just stopped on the analogy, the illustration that Paul uses when he talked about the law of covenant marriage. It's in vogue until there is a death Hence, the English tradition in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, till death do us part, is a part of 
the marriage vows. But he actually wasn't necessarily for that purpose addressing marriage. He was using that as an illustration to talk about as we identify with Jesus Christ, remember the logic of baptism that he talked about in Romans 6, 1 through 4? We identify with the perfect life of Jesus. He was without sin. With his death on our behalf. He loved us and gave himself for us. With his burial and his resurrection. So that when he died in our union with Jesus, we died as well. We died to the law as a means of being found acceptable by God. No longer uh, will we work to use the law in our attempts to obey it to have God deem us enough and acceptably righteous. But in the gift of righteousness that we get by faith in Jesus Christ and in his nature imputed to us as we believe in Jesus, we come to have life and we are not bound by the covenant of the law which we could never keep, but we've been raised in new life. This is Paul's description of what union with Jesus means to us and how it paves the way for a fruit-bearing life. That's what we're looking at this morning. Now, I want to go two different directions this morning. First, I want to talk about three different approaches to life. And secondly, I want to identify for you the path to a fruit-bearing life that's right here in Romans 7, 4 through 6. I want you to live a fruit-bearing life. Well, first... People have many different approaches to living and relating to God or not. People have many different approaches to living and relating to God or to live and not relate to God. I want to talk about three of them. And what's interesting to consider is that all of us live fruit-bearing lives. Now, the fruit is not the same. But all of us live fruit-bearing lives. Eric, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that all of us make choices about how to live that accumulate for us reaping from the sowing of the choices we have made. This is a page out of the Galatians uh, 6 playbook that Paul talked about. And once upon a time, we went over. Whatever a man, whatever a woman sows, that shall she also reap, that shall he also reap. If they sow to the flesh, of the flesh they'll reap corruption. If they sow to the spirit, of the spirit they'll reap eternal life. And so all of us live fruit-bearing lives, but all the fruit is not the same. Did you listen to his characterization of some fruit as the fruit unto death? Whatever that is, I want to stay away from that. But then he talks about bearing fruit in service to Christ, good Fruit. Remember, Jesus himself said, by their fruit, you shall know them. Why did Nora read well this morning, uh, John 15? Well, we wanted her to read that because we're thinking about a fruit-bearing life. 
So there's three possible approaches to life. The first one doesn't appear in the text, but it's important for us to maintain and discuss. It's the nuns. Now, not the Roman Catholic habit kind of nuns, but those who increasingly on Gallup poll surveys, those who increasingly on Pew Research uh, questionnaires, when it gets to the question, well, what is your religious affiliation? The increasingly greater percentage box that's checked these days is none. By the way, dear sister Sandy Butler, we love you. know you're hurting with your mom's death after your father's 18 years of service under your family. We want to be an encouragement to you at Calvary. Yeah, we love you. Good to see you this morning. You're sitting back in the region where you always used to sit. Welcome, welcome. The nuns. It's a possible way to live. Living, assuming God doesn't exist. By the way, it's a very treacherous way to live because when you live assuming God does not exist, you have the world that you have to live in that is devoid of God. What makes sense out of the world? There is no ultimate purpose. Uh, so all suffering is random and difficult to process and has no meaning whatsoever. And if there is no God and we are not accountable to God, then there's no choice that we make that's any better than any other choice that we make. Uh, who is to say what is right and what is wrong, if there is no God, then it's just an opinion that you share and a choice you make based on the opinion that you make. Oh, that's quite a world to live in. And it's a world that's full of death with no dilemma to death. I, I appreciate what Sigmund Freud said when he said, the one dilemma for which we've never found a solution is the dilemma to our own deaths. And he's right apart from Jesus. And so the nuns have to deal with that. Now, if you're a nun and God has brought you here on this glorious Sunday in February, as I walked in, you know, it was 39 degrees, but the spring birds were singing this morning as I came in. That's great. Uh, it's a great Sunday. So if you're a nun and you're here and you're interested and you're thinking how could I ever move from being a nun into a vibrant and living relationship with Jesus? I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you God's story. God made the world and everything in it, including us, and he made us to relate to him. And with our father, Adam, we thought living our way would be better than living his way and we transgressed, we sinned against God, and we walked out of paradise. How's that working for us all these generations later? But rather than give up, and you and I may have given up, God, who couldn't love us more, came running after us in the person of his son, Jesus. And Christmas is all about the birth announcement that was glorious. Good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. But it gets better. This Savior was on a mission. 
to get to Good Friday. To stand between us and the just judgment against our sin that we deserve. He took the bullet at the cross as our substitute. So that in believing in him, we could be given forgiveness. And we could receive a standing in righteousness as a gift. The kind of righteousness that God accepts. Not this manufactured self-salvation project. And then he rose from the dead. And we understood more about what he meant when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He could deliver on what he promised. The tomb is empty. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, if you would justly this past week check that box, I'm a nun, but I'm a concerned nun, and I'm a nun who wants to move, and I'm a nun whom God is opening my heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of our four R's. Come to rely upon Jesus to be your Savior. That's what faith is. It's a reliance upon Him. You see, Eric, I I don't know how to get started. There's a guy who recognized his sin and saw God for who He was, a holy God who couldn't accept Him in His sin, who simply got started like this. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he left in a new relationship with the living God. I invite you to Jesus this morning. Be reconciled to God. We'd love to be next to you if this is your day of beginning. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now the second possible approach to life, it's very popular in the world. It's the religious. I keep the law by conforming externally to the law's demands. Notice it shows up in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, I'll talk more about that phrase in a minute, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. End of verse. There's a lot there in substance. The law reveals the nature of God's character. He is holy. He is separate. He is just. His judgment is right altogether. But he's also merciful. Mercy keeps us from what we do deserve. And in Jesus Christ, mercifully offers us the opportunity of new life. But the religious for years, have sought to aggrandize themselves to God to use God's law, which revealed Him and His nature, the external law of God revealed. They tried to use God's law to get brownie points with God and prove that they were worthy of God, and that's how they have tried to have a relationship with God. If you'd ask them, what's religion? Well, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm working. One could call it moral exertion, an attempt to conform outwardly to what God has revealed in the law. But now he's going to talk more about it, and we'll get there. But the law, all the law ever did 
was to point out to us how badly we are at trying to keep the law. Uh, for example, he's going to say, and it's so, it rings so true to form the life. He says, you know what? I didn't know anything about covetousness. Then I read that verse in the Bible that said, do not covet. And then I discovered all manner of covetousness in my heart. The law awakens us to our need for Christ. The law awakens us to the realization that we don't have the right stuff, nor can we create, manufacture the right stuff in an external conformity to the law of God through moral exertion. I'm trying, Eric. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Hold that thought and let's keep thinking. When I was growing up as a little boy, my mom used to have a phrase. I heard it, I, I, I don't know, a billion and a half times. It would start, it was two words long, but it was very clear. Eric, behave. Eric, behave. Now, I picked up a sense along the way that it was some reference to my behavior that was outside of the scope of her law, and she wanted me to get back in line. Eric, behave. Now, as a boy, I want you to know that I tried. But I determined I wasn't very good at behaving. In fact, along the way, it was that determination that gave rise to an awakening in my heart that I had a heart that not only was not very good at behaving, but worse, a heart that kind of liked misbehaving and was fascinated by that. And I stumbled upon the work of God's Spirit to reveal to me my sinful heart and my need of Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus made sense and actually, not until. Verse 5, while we were living in the flesh. What in the world's that? While we were living in the flesh. He is talking about a life animated by our natural desires and instincts. Some of the, old, the ancients called it the animal desires. Uh, remember, Paul's going to say in a few verses, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That we have Adam's flesh. And as God changes us, we must discipline our flesh and groom our flesh through habitual practice of yielding ourselves to the Lord so that we are not enslaved to the flesh's passions. Here he's talking about our unregenerate state, our pre-conversion state, who we are before we come to know Jesus. We are, and here's his phrase, living in the flesh. We're in a state of nature. Before the grace of God changes us and makes us new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passing away, and behold, all things are becoming new. But notice the implication of living in the flesh Sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. You say, Eric, good, I want to have a fruit-bearing life. Finish the verse. Bear fruit for death. Again, all of us live fruit-bearing lives. It's either a life of the fruit of death or a life 
Philippians 1.11, of the fruit of righteousness. Religious people try to conform to outward standards, norms, and expectations. Eric, isn't this what it means to be uh, religious? You, 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 just, you, you try to uh, obey the law of God and have God accept you because you're trying to obey the law of God. No, the law is most effective just to stir up my awareness of my own sin. Think of Peter's take on the law of God. He gets to the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You know, uh, Christianity breaks out among the Jewish community. And the Jewish community, they were God's people, God's priestly nation, the one true God. And they had Moses and they had the law of God and they had it all going on, they thought. Then they looked out and some Gentile people were believing in Jesus. Remember, the Gentile is kind of a benign English word that we used uh, in the first century. It was like a pagan, godless person. That's, what it, that's who the Gentiles were understood to be. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. What are, what are those pagan, godless people doing saying they believe in Jesus? What are we going to do with them? So they had a big meeting, and, and the law of God was, was on the agenda because these uh, Jewish people had always circumcised their little boys at birth to express their fidelity to the law of God. Well, these Gentile people, what do we do with them? There's a big group that said, hey, we need to send them through the paces. They all need to get circumcised. Peter says this about the law. He stands up in the middle of the meeting and he says this, the law is a yoke with neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. I don't know if you realize it or not, but many have come in even to a decent church like Calvary Baptist Church And they've said to themselves, hey, look at these people. Okay, I I think the whole point is obeying the law. And they've tried to obey the law, and they failed. And they say to themselves, whatever that is, there's no life there. That's dead. And I got nothing out of that. I'm leaving. You know what? It is dead. And it leads to death. Because we're really sorry at keeping the law. But God offers, in his grace, a new life. And what he's saying is, just as a woman in marriage, this is the analogy of 7, 1 through 3, her husband dies and she is free, so in our union with Christ, the perfections of his life the satisfaction of his death to the Father, in our identity with Jesus, we've died to the idea that we have to keep the law to be accepted before God. Jesus perfectly kept the law. So then the third approach to life is just this, the authentic. I yield to the Holy Spirit and experience new life led by the internal promptings of Jesus. The Everest verse in these six verses is verse 6. He worms his way until he gets to verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a page out of the Galatians 2.20 playbook. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. Notice what follows for the authentic. They're raised in new life through union with Christ. God begins to change our lives inside out. Larry Crabb 
a, a counselor from a former generation. He wrote a book once called Inside Out. I love the title because of what it says, is that God begins to change us as the Spirit of God comes to live in us from the inside out. It's not outward conformity to the law that changes us. It is the power of the Spirit of God who works in us that brings us to change. Now notice the results. We're released from the bondage of trying to keep the law and then failing. We get out of jail. Look at verse 6. He says, we're, we're not captive to that any longer. We're bailed out. And what do we have now? We have freedom to serve. Verse 6, serve in a new way of the Spirit. Notice that the Spirit empowers us to obey. Now, once in a while, and I'm not trying to, Andy has been just so wonderful to our family on many fronts. And I mean, you can eat off the floor in the bathroom at our house. Everything's kept speaking. Once in a while, I run the sweeper. I'm not trying to say, you know, with this illustration, say that, you know, I'm responsible. Andy's responsible for everything good in our family. Well, once in a while, I will run the sweeper. And I'll get to running it. And I'll be, you know, getting ahead of steam and making a little progress. And suddenly, I'll have it in my hand. And I'm going through the same gestures that I was going through. And suddenly, I have a deep declension of power. And I think, what happened? Now, it's not one of these battery jobs. I have one of those that dies in about 18 seconds after you use it. But anyway, you know, it's what happened? And invariably, I'll go check the cord. Well, what has happened is I've wrapped the cord around my leg or got it caught on a chair leg or something, and it's pulled the cord out of the wall. So what was really making this dynamic process work and the dirt get off the rug was the source of that power that I was in union with that I pulled out with my leg or the chair leg or something when I went around the corner and the whole thing stopped. Now, I can continue gesturing to be sweeping, you know, but I'll tell you what, nothing is happening. And if the objective is to get dirt off the floor, it's a total failure. But then if I go back and take that coupling union of that cord with that outlet and I plug it in, I can hear the purr of that sweeper and I'll lay back hold of the handle and pretend like I'm getting all this thing done. When actually I'm not doing anything. I'm standing there watching the sweeper do it all. In union with Christ, in the power of Christ living in us, we are not exercising moral exertion. We are exercising a yielded spirit in which the power of Christ lives out through us and we are changed. That's what Paul's getting at. And we come to serve the fruit of righteousness. We're freed to a life of service to Christ. What do we serve? We serve the cause of generous obedience. How much do we know at Calvary about the life empowered by the Holy Spirit? The authentic life runs on the surging power of the Spirit of Christ as we step in to obey. Now, as I bear down on old manhood, um, I, I'm getting asked less, and I bless God for it. But, um, you know, for years, you're always asked, hey, Eric, I'm moving. How about, can you help me this Saturday? And, um, you know, when you're in your 20s, yeah, I'll be there with 20 of my friends. You know, when you're 30, yeah, I'll, I'll come. I love you, man. And when you're 40, it's like, oh, please, can I have something scheduled there? You know, 
And when you're 50, oh, I wish you wouldn't have asked. And when you're 60s and, and you know somebody's going to move, you just don't talk to them until after they're back in the house, you know. <laughs> but invariably, if you're mustered out and you get there, you know, and, and the reason I felt badly about it is invariably, you know, I show up and they say, hey, Mounts, grand piano, third floor up, you know, please take that sucker down the stairs and let's get it going. You know, it's like, oh. And what I would hate, but, but I, I got wise to it. The first thing I'd do is I'd walk in and I'd say, okay, where's the Ken Locker type? Where is he? And I'd get right next to that guy because if they asked me to lay hold of something, I'd say, hey, Ken, you, you get over here and help me. And I love the feel of this. You ever tried to lay hold of something? It's like, oh, that's a thud. That, that sucker's heavy. And have some Bronco Nagurski type, you know, Ken Locker grab it and say, oh, it wasn't nearly as heavy as I thought it was, you know. And that's because 79% of it they have a hold of. And, you know, you take it to where they want it to go. Well, think of the Spirit of God. You look down the barrel of the righteous demands of God's law, and you say, nobody can pick that up. But, oh, with the surge of the power of the Spirit of God alive in us, making us alive to that righteousness and doing, as it were, the heavy lifting of obedience as we yield ourselves to Him. All the life that we've been called to in Christ of serving that obedience, the end result is a fruit-bearing life. And remember, did you notice that Jesus said, I I would have you bear much fruit. He dares to use that word in John 15. That's a lovely word. Now look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. We belong to Jesus Christ when we receive him into our lives. And belonging to him the very one living in union with him who has been raised from the dead in order that there is purpose in this union with Christ. What's the purpose, Paul? That we may bear fruit for God. Do you yearn to have a fruit-bearing life, to be a part of a fruit-bearing church? How do we get there? This passage will tell us. Let's close looking at three elements that help us embrace the fruit-bearing life. What brings followers of Jesus into a fruit-bearing life? Romans 7 opens the door to this fruit-bearing living. There are three elements here to access fruit-bearing. First is something to understand. At its root, we understand that we belong to another way of life. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 6. This is an understanding that we have. This is what we know and therefore appropriate. Notice that he uses the word belong in verse 4. Our lives now belong to Jesus to say what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. We are not our own. He is our great conqueror, raised in power to help us live this life. I love what the author of the book of Hebrews calls Jesus in the captain of our salvation. We have a great captain in Jesus Christ. Our way of life is different. Now we belong to Jesus. But it's not the bad kind of different. It's the good kind of different that leads to the great fruit. It's not wrong to be different. We must teach this to our children because they are growing up. And if God moves them to embrace the life of Jesus Christ, We are distinct and different from our culture. And that's okay. Because Christ is living in us. And we're headed 
to a fruitfulness on a completely different page. We are not supposed to be living the party line. We are fine as distinct. And the distinctions are in the character that Christ forges within us and the virtue that emerges. I mean, stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You know, sticking out like a sore thumb in our culture is actually a badge of honor and gets big play in heaven. Is that our view here at Calvary? Now, the second element we need to understand is this. Our union with Christ's death brings us to resurrection life. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 6 again. We're united with his death and burial and resurrection. This is back to that analogy. Remember, verse 4 begins with likewise. That structural marker is very important. There he alludes to the law of marriage. The husband dies, the wife is free. We die to the law through the death of Christ. And we are raised to live a completely different kind of life that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Our union with Christ's death brings us to resurrection life. A a congregational family in a former church where I had the privilege of serving went out west on a vacation and and somebody in the entourage of the extended family, they set up a horseback ride out in some national park and they were all fired up about it. And the patriarch was quite a guy. He was much beloved by the family, the very, very colorful figure. He was actually also a very, very large man. He had a big frame and then he had celebrated making that big frame full of a lot of substance. And uh, so, uh, you know, they call the wrangler, and the wrangler, hey, I'll get you ready. You know, we have 12 in the entourage, and they get all the horses up, and they saddle them up, and they lay it all around. Well, the family pulls up to the corral, and the chief wrangler's there with the other wranglers, assistant wranglers, and uh, they all get out of the car. And then uh, the patriarch gets out of the car. Les gets out of the car. He's now in heaven, wonderful guy. Uh, he got out of the car, and he, he kind of waddled when he walked. And he, was a, he was a large man. And so he's walking up there, and the wrangler suddenly gets this look on his face like, hey, we're, we're not prepared for this entourage. This is not going to work. So he turned around, much to the amusement of the family, and said, get king! Get, go get king! Somebody go get king! Because secreted in the back room was this steed that, you know, whatever it is, you know, a bajillion hands high and strong as anything, and king could handle anything. And if they could get him on king, it was fine. So uh, for the rest of his life, the family laughed about get king because they were convinced that uh, the resources they had in the horse they had premeditated was not going to pass muster. All to get the king and his power at work in our lives to surge forward in generous obedience to help us live the life that God has always wanted and for our good, the life we actually yearn to realize. Go get king. That's what God did in Jesus Christ. He sent the king who offers to enter our lives and empower us to live lives for him. Does anyone else other than me need such enablement? I do. I feel weak in the face of the demands of holiness 
And I pray with Augustine, Lord, demand what you will, but provide what you demand. And he has in the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Finally, the Spirit of God empowers us to honor Jesus with a new life of obedience. In union with him, we live this out. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. He's hinted at this in chapter 6 and verse 22. We've looked at it. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. Remember, Jesus' life in him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. We are called into servitude then, service, serve. What do we serve? Our servitude shows up in generous obedience. Kent Hughes said, obedience doesn't lead to salvation, but our salvation leads to obedience because Christ is living in us and living through us. Is that what's going on in your life? Is that what's going on in mine? The Chamber of Commerce in Springfield, Ohio, where I grew up for some consecutive years, had this business thing, and they set up uh, pylons and bumpers, and the downtown core became a Grand Prix for these little go-karts. And um, all th- these businessmen who were part of the Chamber of Commerce would, would uh, pimp out these go-karts, and they'd have spray paint jobs that look really cool. And, you know, they, they, they'd walk around. They were all puttering around, you know, and just they'd have the simulation of as if they were having a Grand Prix. Well, uh, my uncle's always been super shrewd with uh, mechanical stuff related to an engine. He's, he's known for that. He could optimize anything and, you know, get horsepower out of a piece of chalk, you know. But, and so uh, there was a colorful realtor in town who uh, got in it. And um, he uh, pimped out his go-kart. And, uh, uh, but he came to my uncle and he says, you got to help me. And he says, well, wh- what do you want? He said, I want you to come up with an elixir. This, this sucker's all, well, I mean, they, they watch stuff and they, they govern what you put in, but I, there's got to be a pint of something you can put in my gas tank so that when this thing starts, all the other people are puttering around driving and mine's racing around there like, you know, it's, it has a jet engine in it. You've got to come up with some elixir to do that. Well, they never came up with anything and he just puttered around with the rest of them and waved at the Grand Prix crowd that was there. But I don't know about you, uh, is it the first step? Is it the first half step? Is it just looking at what is required? You stare at the demands of the holiness of God and you're asking yourself, what in the world can I put in my tank to make this work? And we have in Jesus Christ all that we need. Are we taking advantage of a yielded life in union with Christ? I am the way, Jesus said, John 14, 6. The way to live. In coming to Christ, we take up his life. Every follower of Jesus began to be associated with this way to live. So much so that Luke records that people began to call the way of Christ the way. I mean, take Paul. Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, thought he was doing God a favor by running these believers down. Killed a few. Put others in jail. And Acts 9-2 says this. 
that Paul asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, he would arrest them. Acts 19.9, Luke records this. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. Acts 19.23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Let's celebrate the way. The way Christ wants us to live. By leaning into the Spirit of God to help us, we're called to serve our Lord through His Spirit with living that is generous in its obedience and empowered by the living Christ who's come to live with us. Father, use these verses in your word to probe our soul. We are weak. Deliver us from trusting our moral efforts to be found acceptable. Help us understand the gospel and the glory of Christ living through us, our only hope to have a life that would bring you pleasure. And it's the singular reality of what it means to be converted to Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts right now. Lord, who needs to give up a self-salvation project of self-righteousness? Who needs to confess sin and afresh be bathed in your grace and the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us from sin? Who needs that affirmation from a God so pleased with their yielded efforts in obedience? This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Lord, who is weathered by a world who thinks gospel Christianity is nuts? Who's getting beat down? Who needs lifted up by a glimpse of the delight you take in letting Jesus live his life out through us. Oh, Lord, let us celebrate this union as we sing and as this service closes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.